You're listening to How to Win with Mike Moore, the podcast that provides you with practical insights on how to win in every arena of life. Hello, I'm Mike Moore, and welcome to another episode of the How to Win podcast. These podcasts are based off 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, now thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph. I'm so excited to have you with us today. I believe it's going to be a blessing for you. Please tag a friend and let them know that we are live today on Facebook, and you can also get the audio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, listen, I got my uh, I pad here today. Uh, You can send your questions and your comments in. And really, your questions and comments really is a big part of this podcast. It makes a a big difference. It fills in the gaps, gives you an opportunity to express yourself. At the end of the lesson, I'm going to give your comments. I'm going to attempt to answer your questions, and you are a participant in this uh, podcast. Now, we're teaching on the subject, the culture of heaven. Now, we're teaching this same thing in our Sunday services, and I decided that I wanted to come back and go over what we taught on Sundays in my uh, Tuesday podcast for several reasons. Number one, there are always people who are not connected to our Sunday service, and they get a chance to, you get a chance to hear for the first time. But we, I wanted to have a format where you can ask questions because on Sundays you can't ask questions. So we're going to jump in. We're talking about the culture of heaven and the theme of this series is the fruit of the spirit. This is a four lesson series and this is our third lesson. Now, before we jump in today's lesson, I want to give you a, a short review. I want us to look at the background text of this series on the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23 in the traditional King James Version. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, meekness, temperance, and the scripture says, against such there is no law. The three introductory statements that I want to share with you that I believe will set up what we're going to be teaching today. First, what is the fruit of the Spirit? What are these nine qualities. The fruit of the Spirit is the nine character traits of Jesus placed in seed form in the human spirit of the believer at the new birth. At the new birth, when you and I receive Jesus Christ into our lives and confess Him as Lord of our lives, the Holy Spirit places Jesus' character on the inside of our reborn human spirit. These qualities, all nine of them, are placed in our human spirit at the new birth. Consequently, we should never ask God to give us love, ask God to give us joy, ask God to give us peace, because love and joy and peace and all these qualities are on the inside of you at the new birth, in seed form, and that's the challenge. 
these qualities of Jesus, this is what Jesus looked like and act like, are in our human spirit in seed see form. And if you think about a natural seed, you cannot eat a plum seed. You cannot eat an apple seed. The seed has to grow. The seed has to develop for it to make a difference. That's true in the Christian experience. As long as these fruit are in our spirits in seed form, they will never, never communicate Jesus Christ to the world, which leads to the second point that I want to share, uh, introductory point. It is the responsibility of the believer in partnership with the Holy Spirit to grow and develop the character of Jesus, and that is Christ-likeness. It is our responsibility, your responsibility. If you're a Christian, it is your responsibility, it's my responsibility. Now listen at this, in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the difference between what the Bible calls the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh represents the character of Satan. These are qualities that we exemplify apart from God's help. But the fruit of the Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's one of the primary reasons he came to live on the inside of us, is to help us develop in the character of Jesus, Christ-likeness. Now, I've said this before, but I want to say it again. The goal of the Christian journey is not salvation. The goal of the Christian journey is not the new birth. The new birth is the doorway into the Christian experience, the Christian journey. It is the most important event that we can have we can experience in our lives. However, that's not the goal. Many Christians receive Christ, and that's wonderful, and that's of utmost importance. But that's not the goal of the Christian journey. The goal of the Christian journey is Christ-likeness, to become more and more and more and more and more each day, each week, each month, each year, more and more like Christ. Now, here's our third point, introductory point. Differentness brings distinction. Differentness brings distinction. If we're going to be distinguished as believers, if we're going to stand out as believers, and the Bible says that we should, it says that we are the light of the world. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You are, we are the light of the world. And then in Philippians 2 verse 15, it says that we're dwelling, operating in a perverse, corrupt generation or world, and it instructs you and I to shine as lights. So practically, what does that mean? What does that mean? And what does differentness brings distinction mean? It means that if the world is going to pay attention to us, they have to see 
a difference. And Jesus says, if he's lifted up, they see a difference. Jesus says he will draw all men to himself. So we should be, and you know this in your spirit, without me even saying it, we should be born-again Christians, should relate differently, respond differently, react differently to problems, and we should deal with disappointments differently. And it's this differentness that's going to bring distinction. Well, that's a quick review of, of what we've been talking about. And in our first lesson and second, well, actually our second lesson, this is our third, but in our second lesson, we began to deal with the first three qualities. We're looking at three qualities each lesson. And that second lesson, we talked about love, joy, and peace. And you can go back online, YouTube that, and get that information. You can download our free app, Faith Chapel app. You can download it, and you can get that lesson. In this lesson, we're going to be talking about the next three qualities of Jesus Christ that we call the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to talk about long-suffering. We're going to talk about gentleness, and we're going to talk about goodness. In lesson two, the way we approach those three lessons, those three uh, qualities, love, joy, and peace, we define the quality and then we gave you a distinctive quality of that quality, a distinctive character of that quality. I want to do a little bit different in these three qualities. I want to define what long-suffering gentleness and what goodness means, give you a definition, and then I want to contrast how the quality looks when the fruit of the Spirit is governing and how the quality looks when the works of the flesh are governing. So let's do this. Let's talk about long-suffering, and this is something you and I, we definitely will have to develop. What is long-suffering? Long-suffering is to be long-tempered, which is the opposite of short-tempered. Long-suffering means not easily upset or disturbed by the faults, weaknesses, failures, or ignorance of others. Now think about that. Not disturbed not disturbed by the faults, weaknesses, failures, or ignorances of others. So this has to do when we're confronted with individuals who we experience their faults and their experiences. And, and then sometimes people kind of offend us or tend to offend us, and they don't know they're doing it. They're operating out of ignorance. Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second definition really adds even more meat to what long-suffering is. Long-suffering is bearing with difficult people. Now, so we're not talking now 
about people who support you, people who affirm you, people who on your team and, and care in their way. We're not talking about people who love you and people who praise you and people who you love to be around. No, all of us enjoy those experiences. All of us want to be around people that support us, people that affirm us, people that say good things about us. All of us. It, it doesn't take the Holy Spirit to enjoy that or participate in that kind of environment. But when we talk about long suffering, it has to do with dealing with and bearing with difficult people. Do you know any difficult people? Maybe in your families, are there any difficult people in your family? Difficult people at work, difficult people at school, difficult people on the team you're on. Difficult people bearing with difficult people. Now watch this. Without yielding to resentment, without yielding to self-pity, and without yielding to a desire to retaliate. And I know right away, if you're listening to that list or that definition right away, we need some supernatural help. Because I think we feel the opposite when we're dealing with difficult people. We don't feel like bearing with. We don't feel like uh, not being resentful or self-pity. We don't feel like not retaliating. We feel the opposite. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us. So let's look at what, how this fruit, long-suffering, that's on the inside of you if you're born again, let's look at how this fruit looks when the Holy Spirit is governing. I'll give you proof text, and then I'm gonna come back and give you the context of these verses. In Mark chapter 16, verse 7, in the New Living Translation, it's Jesus, the angels after the resurrection have been instructed by God to give some instructions to the disciples. And it says, now go, the angel is saying to the disciples, now go to, to the women. In fact, there were two women who came to the tomb and Jesus wasn't there. The angel said, now go and tell his disciples including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. Now notice the instruction. The angel says, go and tell the disciples to go to Galilee because in Galilee, Jesus, the, resur the resurrected Christ is going to meet you there. But especially tell Peter. Now, in John 21, verse 15 in the New Living Translation, Jesus appears to the disciples. And notice he pulls Peter aside and he begins to talk to him. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Now, if you look at the context, we have 12 men following Jesus for three and a half years. 
He was responsible, responsible for instructing them, loving them, caring for them, making sure they had the provisions, mentoring, coaching. I mean, he was just literally everything to them. At the moment when, at the time when he really needed them to stand with him, they all, the Bible says, deserted him. But Peter, he just hit rock bottom. Not only did he desert Jesus, but the Bible says he denied him three times, denied that he even knew Jesus, and he did some cursing about it. You know what I mean? Some real profanity flowed out of his mouth. So Jesus is aware of what Peter did. In fact, the Bible says when the third time Peter uh, denied him, the cock crowed, crowed and Jesus looked at him and they, they, they saw each other. And the Bible said Peter went out and wept bitterly. It's very interesting. And we see Jesus being governed by the fruit of the spirit, long suffering, rather than discarding him, rather than totally rejecting him, he's giving Peter another chance. He said, tell the disciples, especially Peter. Now think about it. Jesus is willing to give someone who literally, not just betrayed, but denied him three times, but he's willing to give him another chance. Now, one of the qualifiers and one of the key things is that Peter did change his mind about it. He did repent. But what if Jesus had not given him another chance? Now, I want you to think about this. On the day of Pentecost, the same Peter that had denied Jesus three times stood up in the power of the Holy Spirit, preached the gospel, and 3,000 people were saved. The same Peter over in the fifth chapter, the Bible says that his shadows fell on folk and they were healed. The same Peter became a foundation stone in the early church. What would have happened if Jesus had given up on Peter, when he was confronted with Peter's faults, his weaknesses, and his shortcomings. What does this say to us? This fruit helps us to give folk another chance, give people another chance, give environments another chance, give situations another chance. And then we have to ask ourselves, what if God had not given us another chance? I think sometimes we're just too quick because uh, people are difficult to deal with. And all of us, and, and you know, to be honest with you, sometimes we're difficult to deal with. We just don't see ourselves. But we deal with difficult people and it's a part of life. And God has placed in our spirit a quality that causes us to be distinctive to shine as a light, and it's called long-suffering. Being able to bear with difficult people and not be bitter, not want to retaliate, not want them to 
punished, not want to punish them, to be long-tempered when people not saying it right, not doing it right, not acting right. Now, we all know that there should be some accountability, and if people are not held accountable, it can throw all the team off, so I'm not talking about that, but I'm just talking about in our relationships. Sometimes we give up on people too quick, and we don't give them a, a chance to change. Is there anybody in your life, anybody in your life that you need to give another chance, another chance to change. Now, that's one side of it. That's one side of it. And there's always another side, two sides to every coin. Let's look at what happens when the works of the flesh is governing Rather than acting out on Jesus' qualities, we act out on Satan's qualities. Our proof text for this is Acts 15, verse 37. Acts chapter 15, uh, verse uh, 37. It says, Barnabas agreed and wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul disagreed strongly since John Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Their disagreement was so sharp. Now listen at the text. Their disagreement was so sharp that they separated. Barnabas took John and Paul. Barnabas took John Mark and Paul chose silence. Now, you have to understand the context. I want to take you back to Acts 13, verses 1 through about 4, the first verse. The Bible says in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, there were certain prophets and apostles in this first Christian church of Antioch there were prophets and teachers in this group of this leadership team. And Barnabas and Saul, who later became Paul, was a part of this leadership team. And they were in, a, in an environment where they were fasting and they were praising and worshiping God. And in that environment, the Spirit of God spoke prophetically, separate Barnabas and Saul, who later became Paul, for the work wherein to I've called them. So out of this leadership team, the Holy Spirit wanted Barnabas and Paul to be a ministry team together. The leadership of the team laid hands on them and released them to ministry. So Paul and Barnabas began their first missionary journey as a team. They took along John Mark. John Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. Somewhere in that, at some point in that first missionary journey, John Mark, the nephew of Barnabas, became homesick. He said, I'm going home. And he left the team. Well, in the 15th chapter, Paul and Barnabas agreed that they needed to go back and see the people that they had won to the Lord during their journey. Because many people had been saved, many had been filled with the Spirit, many had been healed. So he, they wanted to go back 
and check on those who had been blessed through uh, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Well, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark again with them on the journey. But Paul said, no, we're not going to do that. We're just not going to do it because he deserted us. He left us. Now, I don't know whether Barnabas was being emotional because this was a relative or maybe he was just operating in long suffering. I don't know. But Paul was adamant that we're not going to to take him. And the Bible says that the contention, the, the, the disagreement was so short that they separated. They ended their relationship. They broke up the team. And Paul, he chose Silas and Barnabas. He picked up John Mark and they went their separate ways. Now, we have no record that they ever reconcile. We have no record that they ever got back together. Now we know that Paul later on in one of the one of the uh, I think it was the book of Colossians, Paul asked for John Mark to come and said that John Mark was profitable. So somewhere along the line, Paul began to see, the importance of John Mark. And think about it, John Mark in uh, writing the book of Mark that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Mark. So there was something special about this young kid who was following them. But what I want you to see is we have two spirit, born again, spirit-filled leaders in the church, in leadership in the church, and they could not come to an agreement. And they, the contention and the quarrel and everything was so hostile and so deep, and they dug in that they broke up the team. And they broke up a team that God had put together. It wasn't God put the team together. So I'm going to ask you a question. I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask you a question. Did God want them, this ministry team that he put together to break up, to break up? Well, I think we all know the answer. Absolutely not. Because when you look at the text, the Bible says that they separated. It does not say the Holy Spirit led them to separate. It says they separated. In other words, they were not operating in the fruit of the Spirit. They didn't, we have no indication that they took quality time and prayed. God put them together out of prayer and fasting. We have no indication that they prayed about it, fasted about it, anything. No, they separated themselves by operating in the works of the flesh. Variance is a work of the flesh. That's quarreling and contention. Strife is a work of the flesh. That's egocentric behavior, selfish ambition. They were stubborn. They dug in, didn't want to talk about it anymore, and they tore up the team. Now, I want to say this. 
And this is, I want I want to take you somewhere that I think is very important. And I'm spending more time on this one than I'll spend on the other ones. But I think this is very, very important for us to self-evaluate and to get this. We all know that Paul eventually wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. We all can trace his journey. We don't know as much about Barnabas, but we believe he did some great things too. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God used those brothers those leaders, Barnabas and Paul, not because of them, but in spite of them. I'm convinced when they both got to heaven, because both of them died and went to heaven, when they got to heaven, I think both of them realized that they left a lot on the table. There was so much more they could have accomplished as a team, but they broke up what God brought together, which tells us that there are times when God can put a couple together in marriage, or God can bring friends together, or God can connect people to a church, or God can connect this, and through the works of the flesh, and not develop in the fruit of the Spirit, you can break up something that God intended to be together. So here's some conclusions that I've drawn from this, and I think is very powerful. Some relationships, and I can say based off this text, I can say based off other scriptures, I can say based off 40 years of pastoring, that sometimes relationships don't work. Sometimes marriage relationships, I met couples that God put together, don't does not work. Sometimes people connect people to friends and, and they, they have a good relationship and sometimes those relationships end. Sometimes people connect people to places of employment or connect people to churches and sometimes those church relationships end. Sometimes uh, God connects singles together in, in dating relationships. You said God will bring couples together to date? Yes. I, I believe God wants singles to date and have people that they can fellowship and go out and eat dinner with and go to the movies and, and do life together. I believe that. And yet those relationships can end. So not all, some relationships will have an end. And I think there are different reasons why. I listed two reasons in church and I like to list those again. I think one reason why relationships end, and listen at this, this may seem strange to you, may seem strange for me to say this, but some endings are good. I believe some endings are a way of escape. I believe God, even, even after looking at that situation and knowing where it's going, I believe that God is satisfied with some endings. Why? I believe sometimes endings are good because you have one person or one party or both persons or both parties that are committed to the works of the flesh. Now that sounds strange for Christians. That sounds like a, 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 a misnomer for a Christian, but some Christians are committed 
to the works of the flesh. And I believe God can see that. And I know some people say, well, you know, God hates divorce and all that. But I, I, yeah, I think God hates divorce, but I think God hates abuse. I think God hates uh, ugliness. I think God hates uh, uh, treating people unfairly. I think God hates infidelity. God hates a whole lot of stuff. And so we shouldn't judge people, couples, married couples, Christians who get divorced because you don't know the situation. You don't know what they were going through. Maybe God wanted them out of that because they, he knew that person is committed to the flesh. There are Christians who are committed to the works of the flesh. And then I think sometimes God just got something better for people. Sometimes singles can come together. Not It's not God's will for them to get married, but they can have great friendship. Maybe God got something better for that person. So we need to not to put our two cents with it. Now, here's the question, though. If it's true that sometimes relationships don't work, and listen, you can ask any questions. You can disagree with anything. I got my iPad here. You can send your questions, your comments. At this time, I'm, I'm waiting on your questions and your comments because I know some of this may be controversial. Now, listen at this. If it's true that some relationships will end and some relationships may need to end, it's better that they end than the major question is, what should our endings look like? If you have a married couple, Christian married couple, and for whatever reason, they decide to go their separation, they decide that they're going to divorce, what should that ending look like for the believer? Not talking about the unsaved, for the believer. Well, I don't think it should look like two Christians in court trying to destroy each other's reputation. I don't think it's two uh, believers in court trying to take as much from the other person as, as they can. And, 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 and I always challenge my guys because there's something special God has placed on your life. I don't think guys should uh, leave a, a wife or for whatever reasons y'all decide to divorce and you not care about her, not care about the, the where she's going to live and how she's going to live and how she's going to make it and, and not care about the kids and, and, and just move over and marry somebody else and do your thing, just totally ignore uh, that family that you had. I just think they should be different. I, I just don't think our endings should be like the unsaved. I think the same thing for singles. Listen, singles, you can be dating somebody, and for whatever reason, it ends. Y'all decide to go your separate ways. I think it should be different. I think it should be different. I think the ending should be different. Why? Because you're the light of the world. You to shine as light in the world. Think about it. Why should why should you end the relationship? Because that's your that's your sister in Christ. That's your brother in Christ. 
why end the relationship and you all hating each other and you, you, you want the other person to not win. That's not replicating Christ. That's not replicating the kingdom of God. Our endings should be different. And I'm a firm believer that you can replicate, you can replicate Christ and the kingdom of heaven, even in an ending. How do we end our job relationships? How do we end church relationships? Do we end that relationship with the church? Maybe, maybe the church didn't do what it should have done. Maybe the leadership didn't do what it should have done. Or maybe God just led you to go somewhere else and that's all right to go somewhere else. But how do we end it? Do we look back on the church and throw rocks at the church and want the church to fail and talk against the church, how do we end? I mean, Christians, we're talking about we're ambassadors of Christ. We don't, we're not part-time ambassadors. We're ambassadors 24-7. So how should our endings be? And I submit to you that they should be different that people can see us, Christ in us, and the person that we end the relationship with should be able to see Christ in us and not Satan. You, you come against me, I'm going to come against you. You curse me, I'm going to curse you. You try to take everything from me, I'm going to try to take everything from you. You took the house from me, so I'm going to take the kids from you. And I'm going to tell them kids, you are the devil. No, that's not replicating Christ. That's not. That's not. And I believe, I, I know I spent a lot of time on that, you know, but I just think that we are acting too much like the world. I got a comment. Thank you for your comments. Uh, any questions, any disagreements to what I'm saying? I want your comments and your questions. Let's talk about gentleness. Gentleness, the quality of gentleness is kindness. That's what the word gentle in that text means. It means kindness. It means compassionate. It means to be warm. It means to be cordial. It means to be nice. It means to be friendly. It means to be empathetic. It means to be flexible. It means to be thoughtful, helpful, attractive. I like what the scripture says in Proverbs 19.22. It said, in Taylor's translation, it says that kindness makes a man attractive. In the Moffat's translation, I got another comment. Thank you for your comments there. In Moffat's translation, uh, Proverbs 19.22, it says, friendliness bear fruit for man. I got a second definition of, of gentleness. Gentleness is extending sincere respect to others regardless of their gender, age, ethnicity, color, academic achievement, position, or economic status. Now listen at that. That's a powerful definition of gentleness. To extend sincere respect to others 
regardless. Now watch this. Regardless of their gender, whether they're male or female, regardless of their age, whether they're children or teenagers or adults or young or elderly, you're going to extend sincere respect regardless of their ethnicity or color, black or white or red or yellow or brown, you're going to extend sincere respect regardless of their academic performance. Maybe they are highly educated, they're a doctor, they have a master's or whatever, or maybe they're uneducated, they don't have any degrees, regardless when you, you're developed in gentleness, this, this fruit of Jesus, this kindness, you're going to offer sincere respect regardless of that person's background, economic status. You're not going to treat the, the rich in a way that you don't res the, treat the homeless. You're going to have the same respect for that homeless person as you have for that uh, very wealthy person. So let's look at the kingdom of darkness. In the kingdom of darkness, this is the belief system. This is the belief system. Dog, this is a dog-eat-dog -dog world where only the strong survive. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. In the kingdom of darkness, you must be hard and tough and unyielding to succeed and compete and belong. And, and that's what the world says. Now, listen, if you're going to succeed in the world, you got to be tough and you got to be hard and all that. Now, in the kingdom, now remember, remember the scripture says that we're the light of the world and it says shine as lights in a perverse that's a twisted, out-of-shape world, and a crooked, that's a world that's contrary to the way God wants things to be. So in the kingdom of Jesus, nothing discredits the testimony of Jesus more than showing unkindness when dealing with people. Now, see, in the, in the, in the kingdom of darkness, you got to handle people rough because you got to let them know you're in charge. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. You do what I say. But, but that's not kingdom. That's the kingdom of darkness. In the kingdom of heaven, kindness is both attractive and kindness is profitable. And I always bring up two, uh, I bring up two uh, businesses. Chick-fil-A. You say, I don't like Chick-fil-A. I don't like their food. Well, I'm not talking about their food. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about their service. There's something that's really different about how they handle people. Now, you may find some extenuating circumstances, but I guarantee you, if you compare the way they deal with people at Chick-fil-A, and some of these other fast food restaurants, it is a world of difference. There's a degree of kindness, gentleness, what the Bible calls gentleness, that's very, very attractive. I'll tell you another place. You said, well, I don't, I don't like that place. Publix, Publix grocery store, is something that they're sharing with those people 
they're just are more friendly. You say, well, that's too expensive. I don't like this. Well, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying I'm talking about gentleness. I'm talking about kindness. Now, here is the bottom line on this. This is the bottom line on this. Christians, people who have Jesus' nature on them, should be the kindest people, the nicest people, the most considerate people, the thoughtful people in the world. When people work with you on your job, you should have a reputation for being kind. You should have a reputation of being considerate and thoughtful. In your church, think about it. our churches should be where people, when they walk in that environment, the people are so thoughtful and so kind and so considerate and so helpful that people would just be drawn to the church even before they hear the word. Because Jesus said, now, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. But, you know, without being condescending, that's not the truth. That's not the tr truth for most Christians. There are Christians, and I want to challenge you now. Remember, I'm on your team. I'm here to help you. There are Christians you see too much of them. You, you say, well, I, I'm just trying to be me. That's who I am. I'm not in all that mushy stuff. And I, no, no, now listen to me. We're not talking about you being you, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit that. I'm talking about you being like Christ, you being Christ-like, and Christ is friendly, and Christ is kind, and Christ is gentle. That hard edge that some Christians have, and you, you see it in the home, you, you see some husbands, you're just too hard, you know? And I know you were trained that in order to be a man, for you, 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 you did, in order to stand, you want them to win. You want them to stand against this hard world. So you handle your kids in a rough fashion. I mean, you handle them rough. Because you don't believe in gentleness. You don't believe in kindness. You, you think that's a, what, what we would say, and I don't use this term often, sissified. I don't want my kids sissified. We say stuff like that. I don't like that word, but I want, uh, that's the word you use. And so we handle, our, we want them to be able to stand in the world. So a lot of daddies, uh, a lot of husbands, you got this hard thing, this hard stuff. And it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. No, some of you, it's your daddy. That's the way your daddy treated you. That's the way your parents treated you. And so really, you're replicating not Christ. You're replicating your dad. You're replicating how you were brought up. And it's not just dad. Some women, you are hard. Some of you are just too hard. I mean, you just hard. You just tough, you know. And 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 and, and some of you especially uh, you that work in corporate America, you, you, you fought and you fought your way and you had to do this and you were not paid as well as others were paid and, and you had to stand and maybe you were mistreated and dealt unfairly. And so you got a hard edge to you. 
I'm talking to you women now. Some of you, and you bring that to the house. See, now you got all that hard stuff. That's not Jesus. That's, that's corporate America. So, so what we're bringing is our upbringing into our environment, our home, and we bring in corporate America in our home, and it's not Jesus. It's not attractive, and that's why sometimes when our kids grow up, they out of there, man. They don't want anything to do with church. They don't want anything. Some of them don't even want anything to do with their parents because we were too hard. We were too hard. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men. He didn't say they're going to run from me. He said, no, I'll draw. So some of you, you're going to have to work on this area. There's a, there's a, there's a scripture text, and I, I definitely want to give you some time, but there's a scriptural text uh, where in Matthew 19, 13, where the parents were bringing their kids to Jesus for them to pray for them. And the text says that the, the, the disciples, the people on Jesus' team, it says they rebuked the parents. And one translator said they shooed the children. They were hard. Now, Jesus was totally opposite. Jesus said, listen, the Bible said he rebuked his disciples. He said, let those kids come to me. And the Bible said he prayed for them. He ministered to them. So we see a disconnect between the leader, uh, the head person, and the, the, the other leaders. And sometimes we see that in business. Sometimes we see that in churches. And if you ask those 12 disciples, uh, are you being mean? They would say, no, we're not being mean. We're just protecting, protecting Jesus. But they were being mean. They were being mean. Now listen at this. Listen at this. Listen at this. Some of us Christians, we're mean. We just mean. And I know I'm not talking to everybody, so don't get your feelings hurt. But some Christians are mean. Now listen at this. The litmus test for kindness and spiritual maturity is twofold. How you talk to, respect, and deal with children. How do you talk to children? How do you deal with children? How, how do you respect children? Get on over there, boy, and shut up. Now, wow, that's not respect, is it? Get over there and shut up. Just, well, see, that's how your mama and your daddy talk to you. So you tell the kid, get over there and shut up. But you want them to grow up and have this kindness stuff, but we handle them, and you can be firm and be respectful. You can be firm. My dad was, my dad, man, my dad was something special. I mean, he was special. He didn't even lift his voice up. And when he talked, I mean, I mean my mama was submitted to him. We, I was submitted to him. And he didn't do all that, that loud hollering and stuff like that. You don't have to do that. And you definitely should be doing any cursing. Get all that out of you. But the litmus test is how do you talk to children? How, how do you respect them? How do you, the level of respect, how you deal with them? And then finally, the second litmus test is how do you reprove and how do you correct those who've sinned, those who made mistakes, and those who fail? Now, let's close out by looking at goodness. Now, I got two comments, but I don't have any questions. Got any questions, you can send them in now. Let's talk about goodness. This quality is Christ-likeness demonstrated in good works 
or apps shown toward others. And it's really easy to recognize. It's easy to recognize goodness. Uh, the Bible in Acts chapter 9, verse 36, and in the uh, contemporary English version, talks about a woman named Tabitha, and she was always doing some good things for people. But then in the Message Bible, Acts 9.36, it says that she, had, she was well known for doing good things. So we can recognize this. Christians should be well known for doing good things. Now, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge with goodness, though. We can all recognize when someone is doing good works, and we should be doing good works. Now, here's the challenge, though. It's easy to recognize good works, but it's difficult to discern them. In other words, it's easy to see the outward work. It's a good work, but it's difficult to discern the motive. In other words, why was the good work performed? And motives matter in the kingdom. So the question is, why are you doing the good work? Why are you doing the good work at church? Why are you doing the good work on your job? Why are you doing the good work? Motive matters. And sometimes people, especially in church, they get offended because their works are not valued. And they feel like, I'm not going to work at the church anymore. I'm through with the church. I, I'm not working in another church. Well, I submit to you, if that's your attitude, because your works were not recognized, and they should be recognized, that you're never going to work in another church again. I submit to you that your motives for working was wrong because your motive should have been you were working for Jesus, working to establish his kingdom, working to carry out his vision. And even though one environment may not be conducive for you working in, just to be through with all works, all churches is an indication that your works really had the wrong motive. And we see that in Acts chapter 5, Sapphire and Ananias, they gave a gift to the church. And it was a good gift, but they lied about it. They wanted to impress people. So the gift was a good gift, but their motive for giving it was wrong. I'll close with this, and, and I got a question, and then I want to get into some of your questions. I'll close with these points. How do we navigate how do we how do we get how do we develop these fruits in us? And what we talked about was long suffering, gentleness, and goodness. How do we develop? Well, here, here two things. We have to stop giving ourselves an excuse for operating the works of the flesh. Jesus. And, and, and what I mean by excuse, sometimes we say, well, I'm just human. I'm just being me. You know, I can't be nobody else. I'm just being me. I just gave him a piece of my mind because I'm a straightforward person. I just tell it like it is. No, no, no. We've got to stop giving out ourselves an excuse for, for the works of the flesh. Jesus did not come into this earth and die so you can operate in the works of the flesh. And he did not send the Holy Spirit so you can operate in your own strength. He sent you the Holy Spirit to help you develop these fruits because you can't do it on your own. Second thing, we have to set a higher goal. I've heard, heard this said. I've said it before. 
And you may have heard it, said it before. I am trying to be the best version of myself. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? I'm trying to be the best version of myself. Now, that may have some uh, uh, good things about it, but really that's a, a lower goal. Our goal should be a best, trying to be a best version of Jesus Christ because really that's not what we're trying to become more like ourselves. We're trying to become more like Jesus. I trust that you got some out of this. We're going to look at the next three and close this series out next week. But I got a couple of questions. I got some comments, and I want to jump in there and, and get your questions. You can send them. You still got time to send them in. Comment, Necessary Endings is a good book to me for those type of need, needed endings and how to identify when endings should take place. Now, uh, uh, apparently this person is a reader. They're recommending a book entitled Necessary Endings. I got that book. It's a great book. It is a great book. It is a great book. And I think you'll learn a lot. I wanted to add that Christian edge to it. How do we as believers in uh, how do we have endings? How do we replicate Christ? How do we establish a culture of heaven even when relationships or situations end? But thank you for mentioning that book. It's entitled Necessary Endings. You can get it from most bookstores, and if they don't have it in, they'll definitely order it for you. Another comment. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for talking about endings. A lot of women stay in abusive relationships because they know God hates divorce. I have been saved over 20 years, and I've never heard a pastor say this. Thank you for this truth. Well, you know, I, you know, when I first start pastoring, you know, I thought, you know, and kind of emphasize God hates divorce, God hates divorce, God hates divorce, God hates divorce. And, and some Christians actually make that a letter of the law. But what if the Spirit of God sees something that is detrimental to that person being in that relationship? And that person yield to the latter because the spirit of God knows if that person is committed to the works of the flesh. The spirit of God knows that person is violent. The spirit of God knows that person that 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 person may destroy this person, and God may want this person out of that relationship. So we have to be very careful when we throw this thing on people and say you gotta stay in there, hang in there. No. We should let people be led by the Spirit. And I thank you for your comment. Question referring to the book, who is the author book? I can't tell you who the author is. Maybe somebody can send it to me uh, before I end. But if you ask for the book, it, you can go to Barnes & Noble's Books A Million, ask for the book, Necessary Endings. They're, 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 in fact, you can, you can Google it. And I bet you, you'll get the author of it. Just say, what, who is the author of the book, Necessary Endings? Google that. It'll, it'll, it'll bring it up. Uh, question, is it possible to be mean with adults and kind with kids? I've seen people acting that way. Yes, it's possible to be mean with adults and kind with kids. It is. It is possible. You know, the thing about meanness 
often we don't know we're being mean. I remember years ago, I had a green couch in my uh, office and people used to say, you don't want to be on Pastor Green couch. You don't want to be on Pastor Green couch. Boy, because when he gets you on that couch, he's just going to come straight at you. Well, you know, I've never been abusive and I never shouted at folk and, and all that. I don't do that kind of stuff. I don't do that at home. I don't do that. I don't do all that shouting and, and, and cursing and carrying on like that. But I always felt like I'm going to be honest with you. So what people were experiencing is what I was calling brutal frankness. But sometimes it, it had a little hard edge to it. And Pete even mentioned to it. Now, Pete loves me. That's my wife's nickname. We've been together for 43 years and she loved me. But she said, Mike, you could be mean sometime. And I'm thinking, shoot, I'm not one of the nicest people on the planet. People have always talked about how nice I was. But I was trying to be honest but I think I could have used more tact to it. And I came on the conviction. I got that couch from my office. I took that couch out. But I had to work on it. And so now I began to think, how could I say this? And then I had one of my leaders in our church. She, she was one of, a personal leader in my office working with me. And one time I said something to her and she looked me in the face and it blessed me. She said, Pastor, you could have said the same thing, but you could have said it differently. And that feedback helped me. I can say nothing, but you just absolutely right. See, we can't see ourselves. We can't see ourselves. And sometimes people are tiptoeing around us. So we need to invite people to give us feedback. How did I say that? Did I say that? Was I mean? Was I harsh in that? We need to get some feedback because we can't see ourselves. And sometimes we're being mean. Been there and done that. What if a minister of the gospel does you wrong? Say things that are hurtful and the things they're doing are making people turn from God. How do you cut yourself off without retaliation from them? That is an outstanding question. It is such a good question that I'm going to read it again. What if a minister of the gospel does you wrong? say things that are hurtful and the things they're doing are making people turn from God. How do you cut yourself off without retaliation from them? Now, there, there are several ways to approach this. I think, I think somewhere in private, there should be some level of confrontation some level of confrontation uh, because preachers, ministers, me, pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, we don't get, dis get discount tickets. So we have to develop the fruit of the Spirit too. And sometimes we're very undeveloped in gentleness. We're very, sometimes ministers are very, in fact, some ministers see being tough and rough with people as an anointing. It's, it's, it's it, you know, I'm being the leader, but a lot of that is worldly. And Jesus even dealt with that. He says, uh, in the king, he says, uh, in the kingdom, we don't lead like that. We don't dominate people. So sometimes that's true, and it's a reality. Some ministers are mean. Some ministers are hard. Some ministers are critical and, uh, and can be very abusive. I think somewhere in a private space, 
with that pastor, that leader, that apostle, that prophet, I think you should say what you feel to them, that you're, you're communicating in a hurtful way. And I think I don't think you should raise your voice. I think you can do it very respectful. Uh, I, I believe it is my opinion, pastor, it's my opinion, apostle, it's my opinion, prophet, that you're being mean and that you're handling people in a hurtful way way and it's driving people away. And then you see how they respond if they're very, uh, give a whole lot of excuses, if they disagree, if they retaliate and talk about you in the pulpit, then you separate yourself from them. You just separate and you pray about, you pray to God and ask God, where should you go? And you just separate yourself and you do it in a respectful way. And then you don't talk to other people about how mean the pastor is, how the prophet is. or the, You don't talk to people about that. You don't spread it out there. No, you confront it. They retaliate it. You separate. Pray and ask God where you should go because everybody's not mean. All ministers are not mean. All ministers are not unkind. All ministers are not, all pastors are not handling people wrong. You pray and ask God where you should go. And you just separate yourself because love is not submitting to abuse. You should not sit abuse to a pastor, me. You shouldn't submit to abuse a husband, a father, or whatever. You know, the Bible, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us to submit to abuse. There's no way in the Bible that it says submit to abuse. I think that's a great question. Now, sometimes it can be difficult. Uh, it can be difficult when you're a child, you know, and you got abusive parents, but you need to have somebody you can talk to. Because sometimes, sometimes people need to, to they, they need to lose their kids. I hate to say that. They need to lose them because they, they, they will cripple kids. Some parents are just flat out abusive. And so if you're in a situation, a kid in a situation like that, somebody, a coach or somebody or somebody or a teacher that you trust, you got to talk to somebody about what's going on in your, in your life. That's a great question. Uh, when long when long suffering to save your marriage, at what point do you give up? What are the indicators it's time to leave? I don't know if there's indicators uh, like if this happens that well naturally if you're in a marriage and the person is abusive, you're gonna separate yourself and then pray about whether you should terminate that relationship. You separate first, then pray about whether you're gonna terminate that relationship. But there are no, I don't think there are indicators. I think we're supposed to be led by the spirit. You should be praying about your relationship. You should be asking God, God, show me my husband's heart. Show me my wife's heart. How do you see this situation? See, there's no ABC, bam. One, two, three, bam. No, you should be led by the Spirit. And you should be talking about your relationships. See, Pete and I, we were very transparent. We did a thing on marriage. You can go online, YouTube, and bring about our marriage journey. And there were times we both didn't like our relationship. We both wanted out of those relationships. Not because we didn't love each other, but we just weren't happy in those relationships. You know, I prayed about my wife, and I prayed about that relationship. And what the Spirit of God said to me, that my wife was a fruitful vine. 
he spoke that to me, that she was a fruitful vine. What he saw in her was that she was a fruitful vine. I ain't seen nothing like that. I didn't see that. But God gave me insight to how he saw my wife. And I am so thankful to God for showing me that. Because sometimes you can be looking at how a person acting, but God can see something totally different in that person. So you should be talking to your God about your spouse because God, he looks at the heart. He can see that person. He can see that person and he's going to tell you the truth. He ain't going to lie to you. But that's a great question. Uh, the truth of the matter is uh, you should never retaliate in a relationship. Retaliation should never be a part of it. Even if there's an abuse situation, you separate yourself, but you don't try to retaliate. You trust God to handle that kind of thing. You don't want to get them. You don't throw no hot grits on them. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you know what I mean? You don't want to do nothing crazy like that. Uh, but you want to trust God. You have to separate yourself and you trust God. Um, and then if people are abusive, you have to talk to authorities too. You know, if somebody hitting on you, you need to talk to the police, you need to talk to the authorities, you need to talk to an attorney, you need to talk to some professional counselor, you need to talk to somebody about that. Uh, is it said the world takes your kindness for weakness. They said Christians are weak pushovers. How do we balance this in operating in kindness? See, that's what they said. See, they said kindness was weakness. The scripture doesn't say that. Scriptures, the scripture says be kind. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. It said be kind. So they said it's weak. Jesus says it's biblical. Jesus says, if we do what he says, then he said, I'll draw men. You, you, you can't operate in biblical love and it be to your disadvantage. Now, the world will tell you that, but that's a lie from the devil. See, the devil tells you you, got, you can't get ahead by being kind. You can't. It, there are even secular books out there now, secular books about the value of kindness. Secular books, kindness is attractive. Kindness will win, but the world said, no, you'll be a pushover. I'm not talking about letting somebody slap you and curse you, and uh, that's, not, that's not biblical kindness. You govern your reactions. You can't govern what other people say or what other people do. But I, I know kindness works. Because I've had some things that was very mean that people said to me. Very mean. Just flat out mean. But kindness worked. Kindness have kept me moving forward. Kindness keep bitterness from getting in your heart. See, the devil wants you to react so that he can shut you down. He wants you to react. The Bible says, love enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those that despitefully use you. God is never going to tell you to do something that's going to hurt you. That's reacting in love, and it keeps bitterness from getting in your heart, and it keeps Satan from shutting you down. So you forgive and you respond in kindness, and it'll protect you, but you got to believe in it. You got to believe in it. Can being kind make you appear weak sometimes? Yes. 
yes. I don't, I don't see a balance in kindness. Like, what's the balance in it? No, you're supposed to be kind even when folk ugly. It's no balance to kindness. It's no balance to kindness. See, kindness is not putting your head down and letting somebody hit you. So there's no balance to it. I can be kind to you when you cussing me. I can be kind to you when you lying about me. I can be kind to you when you betraying me. There is no balance to kindness. So I want you to get that out of your vocabulary. We're supposed to be kind all the time, not dictated by other people. We're supposed to be kind all the time. When folk ugly, we kind. When folk nice, we kind. To children, we're kind. To adults, we're kind. To safe folk, we're kind. To unsafe folk, we're kind. To people who are living what we think is ungodly, we say, well, they're gay and they're homosexual. We're supposed to be kind to everybody, regardless to what, whether we agree with their behavior, we're supposed to be kind to everybody. And there is no balance. There's no time when we should not be kind. And that's what I see balance is. Balance is kind, unkind. That's the only thing balance is. You're either unkind and you're kind. That's balance. So, no, there's no situation where we're called to be unkind. Now, these, this is why I like our questions because you asked just great questions. Some of these stuff I wouldn't even get into if you wouldn't ask the question. So you've asked every one of these questions for just outstanding questions. Listen, I, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, but we're going to be back next week and we're going to finish this up and we're going to talk about faith. That word faith literally means faithfulness, and we're going to talk about meekness, and we're going to talk about temperance, and then we're going to give you some keys to how to, how to develop all these things in your life. Thank you so very much. I appreciate you. God bless you, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>